Glad to have you aboard. I first learned about James Corbett through this uh, disorganized flotilla of freedom fighters. Someone sent me a link to his The Truth About Timothy McVeigh video, and I've cer certainly been a, an, a fan of his work and his, uh, frankly, jealous of his podcastumentary idea. James, so great to talk to you finally, sir. Thank you for having me on board here. It's uh, good to be with you. Tell me a little, uh, as a, uh, I was going to say fellow Canadian, you were raised in Canada, studied in Ireland. I raised myself in Halifax, taught in several Canadian cities, became a U.S. citizen last uh, April. Um, and I, I certainly spent a lot of years as a normie, someone not quite paying attention to media deceptions. Was there an incident or a kind of an inciting event where the, the, the coin popped in your mind and something didn't seem right and that led you to to investigate further there was indeed as i think probably everyone who gets involved in this space does have that moment because of course from the time we are born we are generally indoctrinated into believing that the world is a certain way and we may look into history for examples of conspiracies that have happened between powerful people in the past but that's the ancient past. That doesn't happen in our time. You're crazy. So I think mm -hmm. we all have to get through that indoctrination. And that was a process that I had to go through myself. Having said that, I think I've always been somewhat suspicious of uh, powerful people and their real motives, but um, evidently not enough because it wasn't until around the fifth anniversary of 9-11 that I found myself here in Japan a lowly English teacher, just teaching English and just figuring out what to do with my life. I always wanted to be a writer, so I was just biding my time until I wrote the great Canadian question mark novel, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, then I stumbled down this rabbit hole online of the 9-11 conspiracy theorizing type of stuff that I had denigrated and poo-pooed for the f preceding five years, thinking, yeah, of course. I mean, it's not like Oswald was a lone nut and all of that, but that's a little too far. 9-11, come on. So I, um, was, I, I found myself at that time in a particular situation where for the first time in years, I had an internet connection in my home. Mm -hmm. And so I was making full use of that with all of the new things that were coming along at that time. We're talking late 2006 here. So uh, I was on Google Video, remember when that was a thing, and uh, YouTube, and of course these places like this. And this was, a, for people who are younger, newer, maybe they don't know. There was It was much more Wild West back then, and you could watch all sorts of content, and it was all uh, uh, freely available. So I, I, me being me, always being at least somewhat interested in politics and thinking of myself as politically well-informed, I would watch political documentaries and things like that. And I found in the suggested recommended viewing on the sidebar of old youtube.com, I, I found these links to, well, watch this video about 9-11. And mm -hmm. I would sometimes click almost out of, you know, laughter, haha, <laughs> you know, what kind of nonsense is this going to be? And sometimes I was proven right. It was nonsense about floating orbs, bringing down the towers and things like this. Ah, right. what nonsense. But occasionally there would be some video that would make me think, well, that can't be true. That's not right. And I would have to go and search it for myself and find, oh, Oh, Operation Northwoods really was a thing. Oh, there really was this plan to actually stage terror attacks in the United States. Who knew? Wow. So I found myself increasingly uh, engaged in that process of verifying material that I was finding online. And I think for me, that was my real descent down the rabbit hole is 
because you can poo-poo from the sidelines and just say, oh, that's that can't be true. But when you start to actually research for yourself and start to find some of these documents and read some of these reports and start to see, oh, we we have been lied to about that. I wonder what else we've been lied to about. And so right. it wasn't very long before I started finding out other aspects of the the, the general matrix of control that we find ourselves steeped in. And some people, as you say, are only finding out in the past couple of years, my deepest sympathies to them, because it is a d- deeply disorienting process. I know I went through it myself. And luckily, I had the space and luxury of 15 years of doing that to get my bearings before the craziness of the past couple of years hit. For people who are just waking up now, it's uh, it's that times 10, unfortunately. Boy, you've given me a problem because I have nine possible follow-up questions to what you just (laughs) said. Uh, Let me start with the invention of the modem and worldwide connectivity with what we call the digital age and the availability of of instant global communication. Mm. Has the internet been a double-edged sword? On the one hand, there are Mm. sensors uh, who work in in Silicon Valley and others. They don't want adults having the free flow of information, and so there's a certain corralling of what data is uh, deemed to be acceptable for public consumption. On the other hand, you have people who are who are diligent like dogs with bones wanting to get to the bottom of it, and therefore the Internet has also opened up untold vistas of PDFs and original documents and photographs. Has it been uh, a net gain for, uh, for inquirers into the truth, as pompous as that may sound? <laughs> It's difficult. I don't know if I have the uh, the balance to be able to weigh which side is of uh, uh, is greater at this point, because I think it's still undecided. It is what we make of it, um, ultimately. But it is definitely a double edged sword. And on the one hand, we would not be sitting here talking together and no one would be listening to us if it were not for this technology enabling conversations like this one. And it has profoundly transformed my life. I am a professional podcaster i guess that's a thing i've been doing this as my full-time career for the last 10 years i've been doing it off and on for 14 years Mm -hmm. so 15 years oh i can't i have to mentally update 2022 right Mm -hmm. um so it's it's mind-blowing to me that this even exists this was when i was going through high school i mean podcasting wasn't even a thing so what are you going to be when you grow up i'm going to be a podcaster i mean of course was not something that i ever thought about so it it's something that i i have a profound personal experience of the incredible connectivity and the possibilities that these technologies enable but they call it the worldwide web for a reason. Mm-hmm. It is because it is, to some extent, designed to get you ensnared. And for people who want more of the background of that, just a taste of that, I did a, uh, a report a few years ago, the name of which is going to escape my memory. I believe it was something along the lines of Silicon Spies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> something like that. Anyway, um, it was about the the founding of Silicon Valley and, the, and all of the microchip processors and the big tech companies and then and then of course the facebooks and googles and whatever that all formed in that silicon valley area Mm -hmm. heavily sponsored funded promoted and staffed by dod members and darpa and people associated with the the military complex uh it, it is a military uh, essentially a weapon system that has been deployed on the population. And the interesting thing is when you go into the history of it, into the, say, the 1960s and 70s, when they were first starting to put together databases explicitly for the purposes of tracking dissident movements in the United States regarding anti-war protesters in Vietnam and things like that. Mm-hmm. And 
people recognize that for what it is. And they there were huge rallies and uh, protests that were going on, say, on Harvard campus saying, hey, look, they're involved in this operation, create this database and all of our life is going to be tracked in a computer. People were upset about it when they first heard about it. But fast forward 50 years and it's like, well, you're not on Facebook. What kind of weirdo are you? So yeah. definitely double edged sword. But unfortunately, the way it is being wielded right now is most times against the population. I want to ease into Al-Qaeda. Uh, you mentioned uh, 9-11. That was something that was a, a red pill uh, consumption for me as well, seeing a documentary narrated by Ed Asner, who is, may he rest in peace, I, I don't think was ever a far-right lunatic, uh, not Barb. It was on Building 7, which I, I'd heard nothing about Building 7. Uh, I'd never seen any any side-by-side footage of controlled demolition versus buildings made of similar material and height that burn for days and nothing happens to them. So that was that was huge. Um, but I also noted that the people who spoke up in any kind of eyebrow-raising skepticism were instantly tagged with these devil terms, whether it's truther for 9-11 or conspiracy theory wacko or flat earth or whatever. It's almost like there's this um, little lexicon... Uh, puddle that the oligarchs would dip into this puddle and, and splash it at anyone who dared to challenge the the main narrative. So this is a long-winded way of asking about the origins of the term conspiracy theory in the predecessor uh, or the forerunner of the CIA as a as a, a way to neutralize opposition through Operation Mockingbird. You know where I'm going with this? I, I certainly do. So um, for people who are going to play the, well, let's fact check that game and fact check the claims that I'm about to make. Let's be clear about something. Uh, it, it is not the claim that the CIA literally invented the term conspiracy theorist or something along those lines. That is a straw man argument that is sometimes debunked by the fact checkers. No, 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 no. The actual claim is that in 19, I want to say 67, but please verify that for yourself by searching out CIA document memo 1035 dash nine six zero and you will find the actual memo that was sent out to cia uh agents and uh their uh, uh their media contacts around the world in the wake of the release of the warren commission report on the jfk assassination mm -hmm. and subsequent investigations by mark lane and other researchers who were starting to say hey look this doesn't add up and this magic bullet is nonsense and we're starting to cast doubts on the warren commission's findings and mm -hmm. this memo goes on to state various ways that people uh, in media friendly or cia friendly contacts in the media should uh, fire back at these types of researchers and one of them is to note that the, these you know conspiracy theorists don't have no the evidence has been checked and it, it was all done in a blue ribbon panel and blah 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 mm -hmm. and that term conspiracy theorist is embedded in that um memo and I, I have I don't have the LexisNexis database search to be able to prove this, but it does seem that there is a correlation between the use of the, the the deployment of that memo and the use of that term as a weaponized pejorative, which is specifically used to shut down any dissent against the government. It seems that there's been a concurrent rise um, that seems a little bit too coincidental to simply be coincidence. Mm -hmm. But then again, I'm a conspiracy theorist, so I would say that, right? And right. Uh, unfortunately, it has been so effectively weaponized that uh, a lot of people will do 
absolute mental gymnastics to try to avoid that term. No, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm a a realist researcher, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I've come around uh, on this issue a number of times because obviously it swirls around the type of work that I do. Mm -hmm. I think it is slightly less denigrated in 2022 than it was, say, in 2018, 2019, for obvious reasons. But uh, I have come around to the idea of, no, I, I will embrace the term. You call me a conspiracy theorist? Okay, I'm a conspiracy theorist. And here's my theory, and here's the evidence that I use to back it up, and here's <laughs> right. the sources that I have. What's your evidence, and what theory do you have? Yeah. And uh, so I think that's probably the best way to de-weaponize this term at this point. It's like so many other radioactive weaponized terms that have been inserted into the lexicon over the past several decades. They've become so overused that I think they are losing their intended effect at this point. I even think the the, the terminology that they used to describe SARS-CoV-2, that the fact that it kept changing because it never really obtained purchase, it never really stuck until they decided on COVID-19. It was the China virus, it was the Wuhan virus. For a while there, they tried to go with novel coronavirus. That didn't quite stick either. Um, and uh, just segueing to Al-Qaeda, the 9-11 narrative is that 19 Saudi-born uh, Muslim terrorists trained on single-engine Cessnas in San Diego and Florida and piloted Boeing 757 and 767, whose flight decks are larger than my studio, and performed aerial maneuvers that trained trainers of pilots couldn't pull off. Um, it, you know, just leaving aside now the evidence of of controlled demolition and that sort of thing was was 911 the the kind of apotheosis or the ultimate world stage entree for the al qaeda narrative so finally we couldn't ignore this osama bin laden guy who's been sold to us as the the not so hidden puppet master it certainly was. It was spectacular. It was catalyzing. It was a catastrophic event, exactly as was called for in the PNAC document, Rebuilding America's Defenses, released in September 2000, shortly before Bush came to power. But at any rate, yes, it certainly was the apotheosis of the Al-Qaeda myth. But uh, something that I have been very vastly disappointed with about the independent media and the 9-11 truth movement to the extent that even exists at this point, Mm -hmm. um, is that for the last 20 years, yes, there has been no end of analysis of the fireworks on that particular day. Wow, look at this explosion. Look at that collapse. Look Look at this particular thing. As opposed to the bigger picture perspective of 9-11 not being a single day, a single thing that happened on a single day. It was the result of this 20-year-long, you could go back much further. Uh, you could go back hundreds of years if you want to look at the way that political Islam and has been manipulated by various powers, geopolitical powers for their geopolitical purposes. But mm-hmm. at any rate, specifically when we're looking at the Al-Qaeda story, you can go back 20 years and start looking at that and those connections. And when you mm-hmm. start to tie all of those connections together and see 9-11 in its bigger perspective, you start to get a better handle on what that particular moment in time meant. It, that's just a slice of this much bigger story. And that's what I'm trying to portray in this 
ongoing documentary series that I have. It's not finished yet, but mm-hmm. the first two parts are out and available for download, audio, video, transcript, all of the sources. Everything I say, everything I state is there and linked for people to uh, look at at CorbettReport.com slash Al-Qaeda. Yep. And so far, it's about three and a half hours, I think, the first two parts um, to get us to the point of 9-11. And part three is going to be looking at the war of terror, not the war on terror, the war of terror that was waged as a result of that uh, that pretext. I noticed the use of the word of as opposed to on. Um, what was the, the document from 2000? Under, under uh, Rebuilding America's Defenses. It was a report that was released by Project for a New American Century, which was essentially a collection of neocons who went mm-hmm. on to infest the Bush uh, administration. Cheney, Wolfowitz, Pearl, all of those types of names uh, were involved in that uh, in that group. And they yeah. released a document in September of 2000 called Rebuilding America's Defenses, which was essentially a plan for how can we extend American unipolar hegemony around the world for another century? How can we make the 21st century as effective? Well, we're going to need to rebuild America's defenses because our military is outdated and aging and underfunded. And so we need to completely vastly transform the way our military functions and, and all of this, including Uh, Such things as making race-specific bioweapons a politically viable tool. That is directly from the document. Don't believe me. Please do look it up for yourself. I'm Um, going to link it in the show notes. Yep. Yes, excellent. Well, but once you do so, you'll notice that they do in that document call for a... they, They don't call for. They say that such a radical transformation of the American military would be impossible absent a catastrophic catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. And Pearl Harbor was something that was being mentioned quite a lot by the incoming Bush administration in early 2001. It was invoked uh, by Donald Rumsfeld in his swearing, in his nomination hearings in the Senate uh, when he was uh, being nominated to be the defense secretary. And he was talking about this book he was reading about Pearl Harbor. And it's so amazing how people can go from this mindset of not not wanting to get involved in war to getting involved in war. And it's it's very enlightening, interesting in retrospect once we see how things developed. And 9-11 was immediately recast as the new Pearl Harbor exactly as they were talking about a year in advance. AKA predictive programming? That's one aspect of it, I think. And I also think it's very interesting that the movie Pearl Harbor was released just a few months before uh, uh, 9-11. Definitely a strong Hollywood, Washington, D.C. corridor uh, nexus of alliances. That's, you could do another nine hour corporate report on that, those relationships. <laughs> yeah. um, and speaking of militarized, uh, Donald Rumsfeld was also the chairman of Gilead Sciences, maker of remdesivir, part of the uh, war on humanity there. So there's another little facet to that diamond. Um, Al Qaeda as a term uh, doesn't refer to a club or even an organization. Hi, my name is Ahmed. I belong to Al Qaeda. It really meant the base, right? The, the substructure. Tell us about the origins of the term. So there are competing stories about how this term arose, one of which that I'm sure people have heard in the independent media is Robin Cook, who was in the uh, British Parliament, um, who in 2005 or six, I I linked up the actual um, story in my Al-Qaeda documentary so people can get the link. But he uh, made an assertion that Al-Qaeda referred to the base as in the database of uh, jihadis in Afghanistan uh, who were associated with the CIA. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's a very interesting and compelling 
case or at least a statement, but there is nothing to back that up. And there's no indication of how Robin Cook came to know this. Osama bin Laden, for his part, said that it it did refer uh, it was being used to refer to the bases that he had set up in Afghanistan and he adopted the term Um, at any rate. Uh, what's in a name? Uh, I, I don't think that's, the, you know, the, the smoking gun of all of this. But mm-hmm. it is um, it is interesting, actually, when you start to look into the name game when it comes to the war of terror generally, um, because as you will see in part three of this documentary, um, there are some crazy things of many multiple people being killed multiple times. Oh, this person was killed in a bombing raid and then he was killed again a few months later and then he was killed again the next year and then he was captured yeah. a, the year later. You got to make sure you got to make sure though. You have to make sure. <laughs> yeah. They they want to make sure that people don't don't recognize or put these dots together. Um, and partly that is enabled by the nom de guerre that is often used um, by jihadis. They will not obviously use their real name. They'll use uh, you know, al Al, Al Libby or things like this that mm-hmm, sh- that mm-hmm. show I'm from Libya, I'm from Baghdad, Al Baghdadi, etc. Yeah. Um, these are just nom de guerre that then can be used as a, sort of to, uh, in a name game to sort of confuse you as to who's who and what's what. So that that yeah. is an interesting aspect of it, including the derivation of the term ISIS and all of this. I'll get into that in part three, but um, yeah, that, that's that's at least. Uh, Osama bin Laden says or said that Al Qaeda came from the idea of the bases that he had gotcha. set up in Afghanistan. Uh, do you get into the uh, supposed death of uh, bin Laden? And his, I uh, will do so in part okay. three. Yes, um, a- absolutely. And and there's so much to talk about with regards to that. Uh, also, not only the fact that the death had been reported multiple times before that, mm-hmm. and I don't necessarily believe any of those previous reports, but. I don't necessarily believe the final report with uh, of the final death either. Final death. So, um, yeah, go but, ahead. Uh, yeah. but I will say that uh, uh, one of the most uh, important and underappreciated stories of the 9-11 aftermath was the miraculous escape um, from Tora Bora when uh, the Al-Qaeda and had, was down to uh, uh, dozens of straggling uh, forces that could have easily been taken out and were uh, the, the the orders were there. Everyone was the troops were ready. We, we all we need is to go in and get them. And they were deliberately prevented from doing so as an airlift, the airlift of evil, as Seymour Hersh t- termed it, mm-hmm. got those Al Qaeda fighters out of there into Pakistan and then Osama bin Laden disappeared and they, they just couldn't find him for a decade. Um, there's so much to say there that will be coming in part three. It comes down to often what what bits of information are we permitted to learn? Now, just as a media consumer who at the time, uh, this is before I killed my television set, so there was always the, the Fox News narrative in the background kind of like a, a white noise but i remember seeing um Geraldo rivera and all the all the pundits weighing in on on stuff that i was allowed to know that uh they'd been tracking his cell phone which back then it looked like a world war ii era you know walkie-talkie uh, but they couldn't seem to find the guy and i remember thinking the most finely tuned military in the world with the most sensitive and impressive um uh, location uh you know technologies they can't find the number one guy, but he shows up in videos and, and BBC people and CNN people interview him in shady caves. Why isn't he dead or brought to trial yet? Exactly right. And I go through bits of that in throughout the Al-Qaeda documentary that mm-hmm. um, people can, can – uh, I hope people will pick up on. But um, there's a much – 
vaster story to it. But yes, by 1996, I believe, uh, uh, Bin Laden was using a satellite phone that was being monitored by the NSA. We know this now. They, this is not conspiracy theory. They were monitoring it from 1996. And from that, the NSA managed to find the Yemen Communications Hub, which was the safe house in Yemen where al-Qaeda was using to uh, send messages between countries because sometimes those messages would, uh, phone calls would be blocked between certain countries. So they would all go through this Yemen Communications Hub, which was also being monitored. Mm-hmm. But the NSA wasn't sharing their taps with the CIA. So the CIA set up their own taps and blah, blah, blah. There's this whole story around this. Um, but the the long and short of it, um, as, as comes in the culmination, uh, the final part of part two of my documentary, is that, yes, 100%, they were monitoring that communications hub, which included communications that were going between the uh, uh, alleged hijacker Khalid al-Maidhar and various people. They had... Absolutely. Whatever was being sent, they had it, um, but they just couldn't put the pieces. No, they did put the pieces together. And uh, Thomas Drake, an NSA whistleblower, came out uh, years later to say, no, I I was shown the report that was compiled days after 9-11. This is what we knew. This is all the pieces of information we had. And we had it all right here. And when he brought that to the attention of his supervisor, she said, I wish you hadn't shown me this, Tom. And then they started the prosecution of Thomas Drake, which people can read about and the way that he was drugged through the mud for years Mm -hmm. and years and ended up working at the Apple store because he literally couldn't get any any other job that being one of the highest ranking people at the NSA going into working at the Apple store. I mean, just there's case after case after case of this. Uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri was on uh, a monitored phone at the time that the strikes were uh, happening in 1998 that Clinton ordered in response uh, to the embassy bombings. You remember there's the Tomahawk strikes that ended up bombing a pharmaceutical factory in Sudan right. and and some scattered bases in Afghanistan. Zawahiri was actually on the monitored communications uh, uh, equipment at that time. All that they needed was to uh, uh, communicate with the, the 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 surveillance planes, the reconnaissance planes that they had in the area to triangulate his position, and, and they could have gotten him at that time. But uh, Lawrence Wright, mainstream, you know, Pulitzer-winning journalist, this yep. isn't conspiracy theorizing. He said it's absolutely incredible, un- inconceivable, but they didn't have the planes, so they couldn't get him, and he right. got away. And it, that's that is the story. And when you again, each one little thread in that narrative sounds like just oh that you know well that those things happen you know, it could be coincidence but when you start to weave the tapestry of this in, incredibly complex and intricate thing in which there's not just one or two lucky breaks here or there it's nothing but lucky breaks the entire fabric of al-qaeda is woven out of these yeah. lucky breaks oh they got away somehow or other this time even though they were completely being monitored in absolutely every way mm-hmm. uh, at a certain point, only the dumbest of the dumb would not be able to um, question a narrative like that. And I suppose the foreknowledge of both uh, 9-11 and those strikes and um, Pearl Harbor is another similarity, uh, ironically, that these are, yeah. these, are, these are not incidents that came from a bolt of a blue, from, from unknown players. Um, one character that it still blows my mind to think about how this was not permitted, as you say, not permitted to happen, but planned to happen, is the triple agent, Ali Muhammad. That, to me, is the heart of, of the second 
documentary. Um, if you, as you say, uh, if you presented this to a Hollywood studio, they would laugh. No one would believe this. Even if you, if you think that the story in the movie Argo is true, uh, this triple agent story trumps that a hundred times. Who, who was he and what is a triple agent? Yes, yes. Excellent question. Okay, so Ali Mohammed, to me, any story of the history of Al-Qaeda that does not actually address, at least attempt to address the story of Ali Muhammad is not a real accounting of this history because this is the is the focal point for the, the mystery, the question, how could this possibly happen? So here we have this person serving in the Egyptian military who had done some uh, training at Fort Bragg, uh, an officer exchange program training thing that they had been doing in the 1980s. In fact, while he was there in the U.S. was the time when some of his um, troop uh, troop mates in his particular uh, branch of the Egyptian army uh, were assassinating Sadat while he was there in the United States. Um, so, Already, you think there might be some question marks around this particular character and his associations, but maybe not. So a few years later, um, again, according to official stories of Al-Qaeda, so there you go, take it as gospel. He was tasked by uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, who was leader of Egyptian Islamic Jihad. He eventually became the second in command of Al-Qaeda and eventually mm -hmm. replaced Osama bin Laden as the figurehead of that organization. Um, but at the time, he was head of Egyptian Islamic Jihad, and he tasked uh, Ali Mohammed with infiltrating US, a U.S. intelligence agency. Well, how do you go about doing that? Well, first, he started working for, I believe it was Egypt Air, and um, uh, finding out about you know safety procedures and things, and he proved his worth that way. And then he ends up turning up at the CIA uh, uh, branch office uh, in, uh, I, I believe it was in Cairo, he, he said, okay, look, uh, use me. I'm, you know, I can, I can infiltrate. I can do whatever you guys need me to do. Use me. So they, they decide, okay, we'll test you out. And uh, they sent him, I believe, to Hamburg in Germany um, to uh, infiltrate a, a mosque there and give them information. And so the very first thing he does when he arrives there is say, Hey, I'm CIA. They, they they sent me to here to, to spy on you guys. You know, da da da. The word of this gets back to the CIA that oh, you're from other informants who were already operating there, and they said, hey, this guy is blowing the cover and all of this. So they officially wipe their ties. Oh, we don't want anything to do with this guy. Okay, he's not an agent anymore. Boo. So. From that point, you would think this guy ain't going to get it in a million miles of the U.S., right? Oh, no, 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 no. Apparently, he was on some sort of watch list, but somehow or other managed to come to the U.S. While on board the flight to the U.S., he befriends, he meets uh, a, a single woman who was traveling uh, back to the U.S. On the flight, they meet, they fall in love. A couple of weeks later, he's getting married to her so he can become an American citizen. Mm -hmm. And then joins the U.S. Army to get uh, and, and then immediately um, uh, upon tr passing basic training, he goes he gets transferred to Fort Bragg where he uh, starts working. Um, he's working at a, a unit that's stationed at Fort Bragg. And then he gets selected to teach at the Special Warfare uh, College there, the JFK Special Warfare Forces College, whatever it's called, um, to uh, teach about po uh, political Islam and Islamic relations there. While he is there serving at the home of the Green Berets, he is also on weekends taking trips out to Brooklyn to uh, visit something called the Al-Kifa Refugee Center, which was and is well reported and has been reported for many, many years to have been uh, essentially what the precursor to what became Al-Qaeda 
in the U.S. was there recruiting people mm-hmm. for the jihad in Afghanistan with the help and support and blessing of the CIA. And here we have this Green Beret Special Forces officer coming on weekends to come and train some of these people who end up becoming the World Trade Center bombers, amongst other things. Um, So uh, it it keeps going from there and escalating and getting crazier and stupider. Um, He ends up becoming... After after uh, leaving, uh, getting an honorable discharge from the, the 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 special forces, actually after having gone to Afghanistan, telling his commanding officer, "I'm taking a month off. I'm going to Afghanistan to go fight in that war." So an American American military officer saying, "Look, guys, I'm going to go fight in a foreign war, and uh, you know I'll come back in a month." And he did. He left. He came back. No problem. He he was reported up the chain of command, but nothing ever happened of it. He gets honorably discharged. He becomes an FBI informant. And then he's moving from country to country. At the same time, we are told, as he's helping Osama bin Laden move from Afghanistan to Sudan, he's uh, training Osama bin Laden's personal bodyguards. He's training various people who became uh, uh, plotters in the embassy bombings and uh, the coal bombing, etc. So he's all over this story. And completely untouchable, moving back and forth for years, doing all this for the FBI, the CIA, special forces, all of this craziness. And eventually, after the embassy bombing, he gets pulled in. He gets, there's some sort of secret sentencing that goes on, some sort of trial that we get a few windows into, but we don't get to find out ultimately there's no actual record of him ever having been sentenced. He's just put into what is termed as prote- protective custody and essentially never seen again. There's a few reports from people who say they have seen him in prison, but that's it. And there's no there's no prisoner number. You can't track him. There's some filings that have taken place in his case, but they're all sealed. We, we're not allowed to know anything about this person who was working for working for Al Qaeda at the same time as he was working for the FBI, the CIA, the Green Berets. It's absolute insanity. This reminds me of the final line from a very quotable movie called uh, Napoleon Dynamite, uh, where his uh, older brother looks at Napoleon riding off with his bride on a horse and he says, Lucky! This makes me want to become a Muslim. They're just the most luckiest people in the world. Uh, from from spousal mm. discovery to... Uh, and how about another element here, James, is the number of passports that suddenly are legitimized in foreign airports, allowing these people to fly uh, unmolested. Absolutely right. For example, not only was Ali Mohammed forging passports for people like Ayman al-Zawahiri, who came on a fundraising tour of the U.S. under a a fake passport that Ali Mohammed had provided to him, but also um, uh, Ramzi Youssef, who, of course, came into uh, to the Brooklyn cell to help organize the World Trade Center bombing. Uh, He was brought in as the you know, the terrorist uh, strike force mastermind, the cleaner upper of that operation and, and facilitated it, built the bomb. How did he get in without having a, even a visa to visit the U.S.? And absolutely none of the, the proper paperwork. Well, he came in with another person who was actually stopped by customs and taken into custody and held for months and then deported because he had terrorist manuals and bomb manuals and and uh, all sorts of stuff on him he he didn't have the right passport or anything so he gets taken into attention uh, detention but uh uh, uh, uh ramzi youssef who came with him is allowed to go in because uh, uh the uh, ins were overworked 
Uh, the, the holding tank was full, so we'll just let you yeah. in. But here's a date. You should come back and, and check in with us in a few months, right? So right. he gets he waltzes into the country and uh, immediately before immediately after he sets the bomb in the World Trade Center, he waltzes out of the country and continues romping around the world for another couple of years before he's eventually um, brought in um, again. Just just interesting. I, I wonder I wonder if you or your listeners could do similar things, just waltzing in and out of countries without the proper paperwork. Uh, I wonder if that would work so well for you. Or just stand up and decide I'm going to go fight in foreign war X and have my government's yeah. blessing. Right. Just as yeah. a, a, a unpaid. Yeah, because the American military doesn't mind if American military officers are uh, without any orders, without any uh, approval, just going off to fight in foreign wars that have nothing to do. Well, have nothing to do with the American military officially. So that if yeah. he gets captured or killed there, it becomes an international incident that could bring literally the two nuclear superpowers of the world, America and the Soviets, into actual nuclear Armageddon. They wouldn't care about something like that. Right. Not at the height of the Cold War. I can't think anything that could go wrong with that. Um, you mm. don't use the phrase uh, sheep-dipped asset, which is um, something I've been reading about. Uh, I think it comes up in your Timothy, Mc, Timothy McVeigh uh, documentary. Uh, any of these people, what you would call a sheep-dipped asset, and, and what's a basic definition of that? So sheep dipping is a term that comes from uh, uh, where special forces or, or people in military positions are officially discharged from the military but uh, and then given civilian cover in such and such an operation and um, as, but are actually still working for the uh, the military in an off the record kind of way. And uh, this term was introduced, at least to me, um, by researcher Fletcher Prouty, who had a lot to say, for example, about his knowledge. He was a, uh, a liaison between the Pentagon and the CIA during that time of uh, Bay of Pigs and JFK and all of that sort mm -hmm. of stuff. And he was talking about this as a, a, a maybe not common way, but at least a way that um, people can be put into positions in civilian quote unquote civilian contexts in which they're actually still working for military intelligence. And as you say, I did raise that in my Timothy McVeigh podcast documentary that I did mm -hmm. several years ago, uh, The Secret Life of Timothy McVeigh, where I talked about Timothy McVeigh, who was the washout from special forces. He didn't make the cut. This Green Beret didn't make the cut. So then he became this super ultra radicalized patriot guy going around and talking about how he wants to kill the American government. And um, yeah. there's a whole story involved with that. So if we're looking in the Al-Qaeda story, for examples of that, I would say Ali Muhammad might be a good good example of that, perhaps. Maybe not in the military context. My, my uh, assumption would be that the CIA never really let him go, that uh, he was CIA from the time that he, at least the time that he walked into their offices onwards. And that's not just my assumption. That's been uh, the assumption of many of his close friends and associates and other people who have talked about this case, uh, his commanding officer in his uh, Green Beret unit and others said there's I mean, he had to have had had help by some intelligence agency. Yeah. So the idea is the CIA officially washes their hands of him. Oh, we have nothing to do with him. We've cut all ties, but he's still CIA. Maybe a, an army version of the Marine, more swarthy uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, McVeigh is a much, like a, a much whiter version of the same uh, kind of role. Someone who's been prepped, they've got a, a biography built, and then they're rewarded in some way. Or perhaps they're a patsy, patsy which is the word hey. that 
that uh, yeah that Oswald uses. Yeah, it exactly right. And yes, Oswald I think would be the obvious example of this. The the person who was working at 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 Sugi uh, Air Force Base when they were running the U two program. So obviously extremely sensitive uh, information. At, who just renounces his American citizenship, waltzes into the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War, lives there for a couple of years, comes back on a military um, jet, um, getting the passport that he had just renounced right back, handed right back to him, gets a little entry interview, and okay, now you're free. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, nothing to work look at there. I'm sure Oswald was exactly who they tell us he was, right? Yeah, hidden in, uh, what's the phrase? Plain sight. Uh, James, I know you've got a, a, a butt against another commitment, and so I want to respect that. But I had, do have one last question for you in light of the COVID-19 um, pandemic, and that is, are you a little surprised at the relative silence of the Al-Qaeda slash ISIS slash Muslim terror monster? You'd think that they'd want to take advantage of our own chaos and weakness and destroyed economies and frightened populace. But uh, crickets, what's up with that? Hmm. Well, I, I don't know about you, but I seeing all those images from Afghanistan last year, I didn't see a lot of people wearing masks and social distancing as they were overrunning Kabul. Did right. you? Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, it's, it's like that didn't seem to be the main concern over there for some reason. Yeah, it is interesting. And in fact, that is part of my calculus for 2022. I think that um, some of the geopolitical issues that have been percolating and simmering uh, more or less off the radar for the past couple of years are very much going to thrust themselves into our consciousness over the course of this year. And we're starting to get a taste of that with the recent kerfuffle, Russia, Ukraine, NATO, that sort of thing, uh, the hypersonic missile tests and other things. Those stories are there, but they're obviously not receiving a lot of attention at the moment. But I have a feeling that this is going to be the predominant story of the coming years, the geopolitical tensions. And obviously the Al-Qaeda story is part of that. Um, although it was transferred to ISIS, Al Qaeda are now the good guys in Syria, right? So um, hmm, I don't know. I don't know what to make of all that. At any rate, I'm sure that at the time when a convenient boogeyman is necessary to re-enter the stage, it will it, it will be felt. And obvious, the obvious potential connection is bioterrorism, mm -hmm. and that may be the new domain by which the population is herded into the next crisis and told that in order to save yourselves, you're going to have to be completely tracked, surveilled, and controlled at all times in all ways, right. and all human interaction is going to have to be um, middlemanned by the government. And then we'll be safe from these dastardly bioterrorists. I'm sure that that is at least a potential narrative that will burst onto our onto the scene in the next year or two. They will know for sure who really wears the white hats and who wears the black hats. It'll be obvious. It should be. I think it should be obvious by now. Yeah, right, right. But as I say, I know a lot of people are just getting their first taste of reality in the past couple of years. So honestly, my sympathies to you. And I hope that the Corbett Report can be a resource for you in that process, because I know there's a lot of information to take in. So I'm I'm doing my best to bring attention to issues that I think are important. And I think the Al Qaeda story is important understanding what that was about because that was the basis for the formation of the homeland security state yeah. and if we can show that the basis for the formation of the homeland security state was this entire soup of intelligence agency activity and was highly manipulated and was not what you were told it was and obviously resulted in these horrible disasters like in afghanistan and elsewhere if we can show that 
at the same time as we're getting this biosecurity state in place, mm-hmm. maybe people will be able to put two and two together and see, oh, maybe maybe we should be questioning and not being ramrodded into the next uh, iteration of the Patriot Act on a result of another generated crisis. I keep saying if you live your life like a juror weighing evidence, you're way ahead of the game because you're, you're less likely to be a useful idiot. Uh, James Corbett, thank you so much for your time. Um, a huge fan of what you do. I do have goons I can deploy if you refuse to come back on the show later in the year. Uh, I want to throw attention to the, uh, it's CorbettReport.com. That's C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. Truly open source intelligent news. We were talking today about episodes, I believe it's 408 and 409, False Flags, The Secret History of Al-Qaeda, uh, Part 3 coming up in the pipeline. James, for all, uh, for all the work that you do, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. This is the Patrick Coffin Show. Be a saint. What else is there?